0: I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is a really strong, highly successful, well-known and well-respected presence in the market. He's someone great to know because he knows almost everyone, including the most powerful capital providers behind the scenes. He's a real broker's broker, with a career spanning 45 years, Culminating as CEO of Willis Ree, and he has all the broker's charm and craft accumulated over that period. He's also passionate and wears his heart on his sleeve. A consistent theme he has pursued in his career is a belief in the importance of enabling the renewal of the specialty insurance business in general and the Lloyds market in particular by giving entrepreneurs the opportunities and support they need to innovate and refresh the sector. And in the venture he founded four and a half years ago, he has made it his business to do just that. John Kavanagh is the chairman of Lloyd's Incubator, Underwriter and Investor, BEAT Capital Partners and in this interview we get right to the heart of what BEAT is all about. In this podcast we find out the biggest secular trends in specialty insurance and how BEAT is on a mission to ride and grow with them to its advantage. But we are most lucky to get the benefit of a lifetime of market knowledge and understanding delivered in a completely no-nonsense way. You can hear the conviction coming out of every sentence. I challenge you not to find John's insights hugely useful for your own business. There's something about the combination of strong, passionate leadership and positivity that is really infectious. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as US-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claims Service, means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today.
0: Well, John, welcome to Voice Insurance. Thank you. Beat Capital's been around for quite a while now, and you're probably tired of explaining to everyone. But... Why not do it one more time? Give us a bit of an outline of what Beat Capital is all about for those that don't know.
2: Of course. Well, I'll wind back a bit and talk a bit about why we set this up in the first place. And I, I guess my founding partner, Tom Milligan, and I felt that there was a gap in the market for a vehicle that enabled entrepreneurs to start businesses. And as we all know, the London market was the hotbed for entrepreneurialism with the Catlins and Beasley's of this world. And because of the capital structure in the market and the way that Lloyd's operated with a subscription framework, it really did lend itself to entrepreneurial startups. You know, the capital structure, the private capital particularly, were always enthusiastic about new business opportunities. But a number of things conspired over the last 25 years to make that very difficult for entrepreneurs. The capital base of the market changed considerably, The number of managing agents dropped, the regulatory framework around the Lloyds market in particular, but more broadly globally, made it very difficult for small businesses in terms of addressing the regulation that we had to. And Lloyds itself changed as well in terms of structure, in terms of capital models, and particularly for monoline businesses. The Lloyds capital model makes it very difficult for startups that just focus on one class because a multi-capital or multi-class structure lends itself better to the capital model as it stands. So we felt there were a number of constraints and hurdles around starting new business. And we felt that if we could overcome some of those and put together a framework that offered everything that an entrepreneur needs to start a business, that would be a very worthy thing to do. So starting with paper, which is the most important thing, we needed to provide that, but also systems, infrastructure, regulatory and compliance support, initial financing, all these things were what we considered to be the minimis turnkey capabilities. So we tried to build a plug and play platform for entrepreneurs. And the way that we structured it was that we set the individuals and teams up within their own limited company. We give them equity in the business at the very outset. So we don't seek to build hurdles for the equity. We're trying to attract the best talent with the best deal. And the equities is up front and at the very start of their journey. And what we try and encourage is a perpetual view of the business. So we felt if we were going to get people to come and do this with us, what we couldn't have was a preordained exit structure. So we set ourselves up with a perpetual model. And that's to say that we beat will be around for the foreseeable uh, and enable these businesses to build and create what they want to create. Because if we're going to move 30 and 40-somethings from a very stable, large company environment, to a more riskier environment such as ours, what we had to offer was the full platform, a lot of stability and a lot of longevity. So that's sort of what we set out to do. And we've been going five years now, so the model's been well tried and well tested.
0: To summarise that, would you describe yourself as a sort of incubator or hybrid carrier or that kind of thing? I'm a journalist, I always like to have these um, simple prefixes to describe businesses so what would I say to you what I say incubator or investor or
2: yeah we're an incubator but I think there are nuances around the incubation model I mean we are technically a service business but it's a service business with a focus on underwriting you know I mean what we are particularly focused on is the ability for these teams to make money and obviously if you look at underwriting profit that is and if you look at sort of the component parts of our business now you know, we acquired the syndicate in 2019, which has an entirely different set of responsibilities to our agency business. You know, Our agency business is a fee and PC model. You know, our syndicate business, which you know we've got ownership over the syndicate and manages third-party capital, that is entirely focused on underwriting profit. So although they're separate businesses, they're separately regulated within our business, though they are synonymous with one thing, and that's underwriting profit. And that's what we strive to do with our business. So although we are a service capability and an incubator and a turnkey operator, call it what you will, it's all about underwriting profit. And that is really the key to our model.
0: And some of that's for your own capital, of course, as well.
2: Yes. Well, our model is a third-party capital model, but we've all got personal capital invested in the syndicate. And we also insist that all of our teams have some skin in the game. And we do that synthetically if they don't have the capability to be a Lloyd's name or we do it through a Lloyd's vehicle.
0: That's kind of old school, isn't it, in the way that the old underwriters always used to have their own line on the syndicate?
2: Yeah, it is old school, but we think it's sort of fundamental, you know, and at least we can look our capital providers in the eye and say that... You know, if we're winning, you're winning, and if we're
0: losing, you're losing, we all
2: do it together.
0: And I suppose with that regulated entity, there's still some residual capital that has to be beat capital's capital in those syndicates.
2: Yes. So so beat per se doesn't have any capital behind the syndicate. So we felt it was very important for us to retain our sort of agency model versus a balance sheet model so we are principally an agency business that has a syndicate where underwriting profit is fundamental and that comes under a very different management regime my partner tom you know is very much focused on underwriting i would be positively dangerous with a stamp in my hand so you know i focus on the agency side of the house and that's the way we run the business so we take both sides of the equation very seriously. We see them as being completely synonymous and joined at the hip.
0: And in terms of size, in GWP, the beginning of 2021 is around 500 million dollars yeah. of GWP. Obviously, that was over a year ago. Probably been quite a lot of growth since then. What's that up to now? And what are you projecting? What's the budget for 22?
2: I think we're probably going to end 21 around about 530, 540 million. And we're probably going to be anywhere between six and 700 million for 22. And the reason I'm slightly hesitant to put a definite number on that is that we've opened up in the USA and we're sort of relatively fledgling there. We're just building out our model, but we have every expectation that that will take off and enhance our growth for the whole group. So, yeah, I'd say anywhere between six and 700 million next year. We've been very blessed with an upswinging market. We didn't see that when we started the business in 2018. But you know, we've had the good fortune of the uplifts in 1920 and 21. Now we've had some difficult loss activity in that period. But you you can't argue the fact that it's been a good market. And it's enabled us to grow. And we've also benefited from a lot of disruption in that market. People working for some of the larger enterprises have felt that there was another, you know, another way of doing things. There was another way of pursuing a different career and going down a different career path so we have sort of come of age as a business and people see us as a a serious player and a stable player with good shareholders and good security so we've had the ability to build talent within the business because of the reputation that we've been building
0: and we've had the benefit of an upswinging market and in terms of how many units of different businesses within the beat capital family is that likely to grow? I presume you've got people knocking on your door all the time with business plans asking yep. to see you. So how many more do you think you're going to be saying yes to and adding to the fold in 22?
2: I mean, we've got eight businesses. Well, sorry, we had eight businesses until we sold Tarion, so we're now seven. So we've been growing at about two a year. We've seen about 250 plans. Of the eight businesses that we've started, I'd say five of those would be personal relationships. So we've really only done three where they walked in from other alternative sources. So we've been pretty selective about what we do and what we don't do, but we continue to see a very strong pipeline. But I reckon we're going at the right pace. We're not trying to run before we can walk. I mean, I think a couple a year is a very sustainable growth expectation. And we have a very exciting pipeline, which is getting more exciting by the minute as we now start to network North America. We see that as very fertile turf for us and our model. And we think our model will resonate there reasonably well. It's a lot more competitive in the United States because the MGA model is much more established than in the UK. But you know, we think we've got enough twists in our model to make it very appealing.
0: Certainly, I've interviewed lots of members of what's almost like a new class of business that I think you're part of describing themselves perhaps as the hybrid carrier. And certainly most of those are in the States. And that seems to be where the most of the potential seems to be. We're talking about some members of that category saying there's a sixty dollars opportunity. To be almost fronting carriers, but also you're providing the license and you're effectively vetting the underwriting and giving it a stamp of approval and then connecting it with the wider capital markets. Yeah. Do you see yourself as part of that or you're slightly different?
2: No, we kind of see ourselves as part of that. I mean, I think you've got to take a step back and look at the broader trend. And I think what we're seeing is that there's a radical change going on in the United States, particularly at the moment, where a lot of the standard lines carriers are feeling less comfortable with the fringy specialty areas of business and you've seen a massive inflow of specialty opportunities into the ENS markets in the United States and I think that's a trend that's going to continue as the big PNC carriers progressively stick to their knitting in a market where they know they can make money doing what they do well Yep. So they're less inclined to take chances on this funny old specialty stuff. So what we're seeing is a massive inflow of business. And if you look at the growth in the ENS broken community with Ryan specialty and our shareholders at Amwins, they've done incredibly well over the last ten years. It's just been a phenomenal growth spurt, particularly in the wholesale market. So I think to an extent, the MGA market and the sort of hybrid carrier as you refer to it is a sort of byproduct of the phenomenal growth that we're seeing, you know, as a consequence of that change yep. in dynamic within the big P&C companies. It's a bit like, you know, if you look at the financial markets 20 years ago and look at the banks, for example, a lot of the real talent in the banks were sitting there saying, well, why are we working for these big banks making them all the money when we're actually we are the engine's profit? And you then saw the emergence of the hedge fund model. And I think the MGA model is, in a very small way, our response to that type of movement where guys who've been working for big carriers, making those carriers lots of money, carrying huge portfolios of business with big personal attachment to them, and now saying, well, actually, I can go off and do this on my own. And historically, the MGA model in pockets has been seen as somewhat scruffy. A lot of the MGAs going back many years were distribution derivatives. They were brokers that all of a sudden specialized that all of a sudden we give an underwriting authority, and all of a sudden it's an MGA. But they weren't really underwriting-focused, and I think the big shift now is that the MGAs are now more underwriting specialists and underwriting-focused, less focused on distribution. Distribution is very important, but the fundamental tenet of the MGAs is underwriting profitability. Historically, you know, people like AIG were the principal carrier for a lot of the early MGA activity in the US, And really, the AIG drove the pricing, the claims handling. The whole process of underwriting was really just delegated through to the carrier. And I think that's changed now. And I think a lot of the specialty MGAs of the modern era are absolutely underwriting-focused. So I think the whole movement has come of age. And I think the reason why the hybrid carriers are there... And we need to be careful in that world, because if we go back to the 90s with the Legion and Reliance National and some of those other carriers that were fronting, were taking caps on reinsurance, were buying reinsurance with not good security, that ended in tears. So we tread very carefully in that market, and there is a huge movement now towards the hybrid carrier, but we're going to very selectively work around that.
0: And there's the other part of that dynamic. And obviously, you know, the reinsurance market better than anybody. Is it that reinsurers over that 20, 30 year period, whereas before they used to be able to get business from cedents, those cedents have all consolidated become global, massive multinationals, which buy massive global programs, and they yep. don't get the access to some of that more high volume, small premium, high number of contracts, yep. stable Perhaps lower margin, but nice, stable rump of business. They've ended up with a more volatile book over that 20-year period than they would have otherwise done. And now, obviously, they're very keen to access that business again via businesses yeah. like yourselves, so, I, that- I think
2: that's absolutely correct. I mean, I go back to my broking days, and the challenge that we had was that if you looked at the distribution of our brokerage, you know, we had a massive weighting towards the big carriers in terms of our revenue stream. Having a book of super regionals and Midwest mutuals was great, and it gave us good spread, as did our global book. But really, we depended on 7 to 10 large carriers buying reinsurance. And if you look at progressively how they've evolved. And obviously, they've made different buying decisions within that time frame. But by and large, the regulators were pushing them for more capital for proportionately less risk. And they were assuming more risk on their own balance sheet. So progressively for a broker, it was very difficult to work out where you saw your growth, or even sustaining your existing brokerage if that trend continued so regeneration of talent of revenue in different formats is fundamental to a broker so the hybrid carrier route and this mga movement is a broker manner from heaven what it gives them is regeneration opportunities now what we've got to be careful of is that we don't get too carried away with it there needs to be discipline within that framework and i think while the reinsurance market is pretty tight there will be good discipline there Because the whole thing hinges on the reinsurance market, assuming the risk through the back door, through the front carrier.
0: They're only going to take it if they're making underwriting profit.
2: Well, notionally, yes. Um, (laughs) And that's always the case, I'm sure. But as we know, there are different types of markets at different points in the cycle. So I think we need to keep an eye on the management of the process, which is why we're quite, not sceptical, but careful around the hybrid capital model. And, you know, we're big on skin in the game. So everything we do... We'll have our own capital front and centre. And we think that sends a very strong message to any partners that we have.
0: And obviously you're very bullish about ENS growth in the States. Is that cyclical? Because obviously it's the sort of thing that in a harder market, the admitted carriers dump all that slightly weird and wonderful stuff that they loaded up on in the soft market. And then, you know, as the market softens again, and they're saying it's not going to happen right now, but in two or three years' time we could see it happening, will it start to come back again? And then at that moment, would you ever consider looking at an admitted distribution if that were to happen?
2: I mean, business, I think inevitably, when the market changes, maybe softens, then the P&C carriers might look towards taking more back that would be notionally specialty into their own portfolio. And that will always happen. But proportionately, less goes back every time. So if I look at the last three or four hard markets, there's been a huge flopping out of specialty business into the E&S market and it's been a drift back of less significance when the market softened so I think it every time we have a market like this less of it goes back to the admitted carriers so yes it will always happen but I don't see that as stemming the tide of growth in the specialty markets.
0: It's a big secular trend and is it also that obviously the nature of risk is that you know we've got things like cyber didn't exist the last when we were talking about reliance you know that no one bought cyber then yeah 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 Um, so you know The nature of new risk is that it's specialty by definition, is it? Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, Yeah, without a doubt. And, yeah, we like making markets in businesses like cyber. In fact, we did. That's what the specialty markets are all about. Whether any of that will flop back into the admitted market remains to be seen. I doubt it somehow.
0: What about your philosophy when you're being approached by an underwriter? Are you looking strategically to say, great, you're in one of these high growth classes or you're dealing with very high growth or you're serving high growth sectors of the economy, like the sharing economy or one of those things? Or do you just look for a good underwriter with a good track record and you wouldn't mind if they were in something really kind of, you know, let's say boring and less sexy Mm -hmm. and more traditional? Is it the person or is it the idea? It's the
2: person. Yeah, we're class agnostic, really. Obviously, we've got eight businesses now, so we've got some degree of crossover, and, and there are things that we would focus on now more than others. But, yeah, what we're really interested in is the talent. So what we want to see is somebody that has a track record of underwriting profitability, that has the ability to maintain cross-cyclical underwriting profitability, that has the culture that fits with us. And that's really important because, as you know, underwriting talent varies And attitudes around risk vary. What we want to see are people that have a model-based view of risk, have a very technical view of pricing, have a complete understanding of their aggregation, understand their systemic exposure, and are committed to upgrading that technology as risk changes. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for people that have the heft to move 30 to 50 million pounds of income within three to five years because we're a small business and we want to keep the partnership group within the center of our business active and able to manage what we've got so we're looking for bigger deals
0: so you're not something like the lloyd's lab you're not an incubator in that sense that you're a sort of venture capitalist or anything We, we could we could be
2: but that's not really our model i wouldn't write that off A lot of people say to us, you're not really an ideas-based business. You know, you're looking at old school risk opportunities. And that would probably be right. But what I would challenge is the fact that we wouldn't do something in the tech area if it made sense. Often we see the tech opportunities either far too late or far too early. And they just don't really fit with us. Or certainly the ones that we've seen so far haven't. But that's not to say that they won't. We came close to doing something actually in Australia that really did fit with us. Didn't come off, unfortunately, but we are absolutely open to looking at those types of deals. But what we're really after is proven talent with a track record on business that we understand, on business that we can quantify, and individuals that have the culture that fits with us and have the ability to run a business. Because what we're asking them to do is be the CEO of their own firm. And a lot of these guys and girls are coming from big companies where they've never really managed the business they've managed the division of a big firm. things just magically happen yeah yeah. you know cash flow what's that (laughs) you know know, so there's there's an education process that everybody's been through on our existing platform of learning how to run a business And, and obviously we've all run businesses of varying size startups large brokers whatever and I think we can be of real help to them and that's really part of our offering. Aside from the hard stuff being the paper and the finance and the platform, the soft stuff, the help with running their business, the working with them to buy reinsurance and and just build out a platform that they'll be proud of is really part of what we do.
0: Within your business model, what's that optimal mix of underwriting for your own capital, the underwriting for your own account and underwriting on behalf of others? Yep. What's the optimal mix? It sounds like You have enough skin in the game to keep the third-party capital provider happy, and that's it. Would it be fair to say if you could retain less, you would?
2: No, not necessarily. No. No. So, well, again, I'll I'll step back and, and answer that in a roundabout way. So we bought a syndicate in 2019 that had an existing supply of capital. It was a cat syndicate called iCat, and as you might expect it did what it said on the tin it wrote a cat insurance business and did it very well it was a top quartile syndicate when we took it over uh, we knew it had losses on 2017 2018 unfortunately 2019 20 have proven very tricky the achilles heel for a cat insurance business of that nature is frequency of cat and that's exactly what we've had so we had a problem with that but we've non-renewed it no disrespect to our cat they're a fine business but that's not what we're about so we've replaced that with beat business So of the seven or eight, now seven businesses that we have, the sort of principal focal point for capital supply for that is our syndicate 4242. And Lloyd's have been fantastically supportive of that transition. So what we then set out to do was build capital behind that, that we could see as buying into our model, buying into our vision and buying longevity of capital support. So we went through a process in the summer of last year, through Evercore, our banker. We met with 20-odd investment groups. We got down to, well, we had seven firm bids. We got down to two potential partners and we selected Bain Capital. And we're very glad that we did. They're a fantastic partner. And they invested in our holding company, which is the agency component of the business and the syndicate. But more importantly, they put a significant capital sum behind the syndicate. And then this year we've added Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan, who have come alongside our main syndicate with an SPA, which is a straight quota share of Syndicate 4242. So with those two capital providers and our existing framework of capital providers, principally NAMES and the likes of Everest 3 and some other significant trade players, we've really got a very strong capital base now for the future. And we've got lots of scope for growth. So our capital position is secure that's very important to us and and what we want to do is use syndicate 4242 as the centerpiece for all of our risk taking so proportionately it takes about 65% of our risk right now that and the spa and the other 35 is placed with consortiums in lloyds now we're going to be branching out with our us platform because yes we will avail ourselves of the hybrid carrier opportunity and we're in discussions there with a carrier that will give us access to that market and that will be in the form of a rated carrier that we can use and pass through to the syndicate or to other carrier partners of ours so we'll get more width out of our u.s venture because at the moment it's really just the lloyd syndicate that is our capital vehicle and our partners alongside us
0: so it's more flexible than that it's not just having enough skin in the game to get the third party person happy yeah. It's more than that. You are happy to write for your own account. Particularly. Oh, yeah. Presumably in this market. You mentioned the market. Is the market helping or hindering you?
2: Oh, it's helping us. Yeah, of course. We hadn't gambled on. Uh, when we set this up, it was a pretty ugly market, actually. And we set our stall out in very modest terms. But when we acquired the syndicate and had that transformer between risk and capital, it enabled us to accelerate our growth in what we could consider to be a very favorable market. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think timing is everything and the syndicate came our way at the right time. It would have been nice to have been able to start our own syndicate, but 2019 was not the market to do that from a Lloyd's perspective. They were cutting everybody back, and us coming along with a new syndicate just wasn't an option. So we had to work with something that was already there in the market, and that's exactly what we did.
0: We've mentioned about the acquisition of Tarion by Corvus. Run us through that. Should somebody listen to this say, Well, that's a kind of standard model, or is it just sort of occupational hazards of being in this business? When you get involved in a new unit and a new underwriting business, do you want them to be perpetual? Would you like them to stay forever, or is there an intention to build them up to a certain size and then sell them off? No, there isn't an intention. There's no real plan one way or another? Is it sort of agnostic? no, No,
2: there most definitely is a plan. I mean, our plan is to offer a perpetual platform for these businesses. So as long as they want to stay with us, we'll be there. And we did not set up any preordained buyout or formulaic exit structures when we did this, not for ourselves or for the businesses that we start. So Tarion an interesting case in point. So that's our first business. We started that in 2017. Jeff Pryor-Wyatt and his team have been doing this stuff a long time. He's a sort of grandfather of the cyber market, such as it is. And they came over to us from Barbican. We then took over the consortium placement, which was a fairly widespread Lloyd's slip. Of pretty serious players on it. He has had a good track record. Obviously, ransomware was problematic. We cut the business in half to basically address that until such time as we got comfortable with the challenge of ransomware. We just felt it was right to cut things back. We cut our line structure back. We cut the consortium back. And then when we felt we got a handle on it, we started growing the business again. And in fact, it grew quite significantly for 22 And we'd had a couple of approaches for Tarion because, as you know, the cyber market is pretty hot and there are lots of people looking to get involved in it. And Jeff and his team have a great track record and are very well regarded. But we had an approach in the summer from Corvus and it came through a really good friend of mine that I haven't seen for a while that I did business with back in the 80s. So it was a very credible approach. And when I looked at the Corvus business, it was very well backed by a lot of very respectable capital. One or two people that I know very well are on their board. So it was a conversation we took very seriously. And the conversation started along the lines of, can we partner here? Because we believe we've got very strong technological, cybersecurity, software capability. You guys have got the underwriting skills. We think it would be a great match. And indeed it is. But we didn't really see a partnership as an option for us. We just didn't want to get involved in that very high techy." market where valuations are just off the chart. So we looked at the prospect of a partnership and seemingly was quite attracted because we liked their business and we liked their business model. But it transpired that an acquisition was probably the best way of dealing with it. I think Jeff and his team felt that it would be a powerful combination. And we from an underwriting standpoint continue to support the Tarian business through the syndicate. And it's worked out very well for everybody. But that's a very unusual circumstance for us. And it was just one of those situations where we felt that the combination was a much stronger cyber business than if we'd have stayed independently of each other. What Corvus was looking for was an international platform and a very strong underwriting team. What we lacked was that massive investment capability in cyber software. So we think it's a pretty good marriage and it's an unusual circumstance for us. So our business model hasn't changed. It doesn't connote any shift in our view at all that we are a perpetual business.
0: Would you be looking to carry on backing them with capital, underwriting capital long, long term, if it's not under your control? So uh, we'll see where
2: the business heads. So, you know, we had a plan agreed for 2022. We discussed it with Lloyds when this became apparent that the deal was going to be done. And we're going to stay with it for 22 and we'll see where we go from
0: there. I mean, as you know, it's difficult to plan ahead within the Lloyd's Framework beyond a year. So from what you've just said, would it be right then to assume that you'd see yourself more with your businesses more likely to be buyers if they're perpetually beat capital family businesses? Are they more likely to be a buyer rather than a seller in your mind or or always organic or not? No, I think where
2: we sit at the moment, I think we'll stay organic. I think the subscription market that we operate in offers fantastic opportunity for rapid growth done properly. So why buy it if you can build it for nothing, in effect? Now, that's not to say we wouldn't buy businesses if they were strategically of value to us, because we've kept our business relatively capital light, so we don't have an investment pot as such. And we grandly style ourselves a, a venture capital business, but we're a venture capital business without cash, in any volume yeah, we've got enough to start businesses to the extent that we need to but we don't have a big pot of cash to invest i.e buy businesses and you know we think the market's pretty frothy at the moment as well so it's probably a seller's market not a buyer's market
0: what about lloyd's Obviously, you mentioned lloyd's it's a wonderful place but it's also an eternal frustration to everybody lots of other players in this market and entrepreneurial players and famous entrepreneurial players have been developing their London businesses outside Lloyds and doing pretty well. I had a very good interview recently with Patrick Tiernan. He's saying, you know, they've gone into a new phase of trying to make things easier for the good players. We've come out of this remedial phase where they've been battering everybody and the prize probably was just to be left alone if you were in top quartile. Now yeah. no one to say, actually, top quartile, we're not going to leave you alone. We want to actively try and help you. Do you think that Lloyds is doing enough to make it itself an attractive long-term entrepreneurial home because obviously we've seen the success of people doing stuff outside Lloyds. Yeah so as you know I'm probably
2: one of Lloyds biggest advocates. I've been very vocally.
0: Yeah but you're a big member of the community but you've never been afraid to speak at conferences and and criticize Lloyds. And I'll continue
2: to, no I, I will do that where I think it's warranted but I am its biggest fan I think and I don't say that frivolously. I believe that the platform that Lloyds offers It's probably the only platform we could have built our business on, actually, in the manner that we have. Because you're buying into an A-plus rating, you're buying into a subscription structure, you're buying into a lot of familiarity, the policy sells all the way around the world. And we forget their fundamentals are very strong. The licensing fundamentals, the rating, the central fund, the infrastructure, the history, all of that.
0: And the leverage on capital.
2: And the leverage on capital, which you can't underestimate. So, you know, it really is a fantastic platform. And you can't knock it. Well, I don't want to knock it. And, you know, we wouldn't have gone anywhere else, really. Now, are there shortcomings around the platform? Of course there are. But, you know, if you look at it from our perspective, we bought a syndicate or we bought the rights to trade a syndicate. You you never really own a syndicate at lawyers, You buy the rights to trade it because this is managed by a third-party managing agent, 4242. So we bought the rights to trade the syndicate. It was £145 million of cap business, and it's now £300 million of beat business. So we've had a half-a-billion-pound turnaround, really, of revenue through that syndicate. Lloyd's have been supportive to the end. We've now ended up with a beat syndicate of our business on that platform that we took over only three years ago. There aren't too many places you can do that with that sort of nimbleness and flexibility and leverage on capital. So we've improved our leverage massively because we were a cat syndicate and now we're not. So the capital ratios have massively improved and our capital providers are happy. And obviously, we've had some issues with some of the, the ICAT activity on the losses. So, yeah, our numbers have not been great in terms of some of the stuff we inherited, but we will fix it and the syndicate will be profitable. But in terms of what they've allowed us to do from a, management, a central management standpoint, is great. Yeah, we can't complain. Now, would we like more growth? Of course we would. And I think that's one of the big challenges that I think they've had such a remediation job to do in the bottom half of the market. And obviously that's been overlaid in the last two or three years with COVID, with the big cancellation abandonment issues that we've had, the cat losses in 17, 18, 19, 20 and 21. So five years of cat frequency, lots of climate change issues that are now popping up. We've had the ransomware scenario. So there's been lots of challenges despite the upswinging market. And you have to understand the challenge they've got with their own regulator from a rating standpoint. And you have to be sympathetic with that and you're always going to have to expect that those syndicates that have been consistently profitable will get a lot more flexibility than those that aren't. I guess we roll with the punches there. That's all part of living in the community. But you can't knock the platform.
0: I can't. John, I think I've come to the end of all my questions. looks like you're incredibly busy. We should be looking for more announcements of new beat capital investments coming on stream sometime this year, I presume, and your existing companies opening up in Sounds like in America, in North America particularly, and other places. But otherwise, thanks so much for speaking to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Nice to see you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in The Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.